58. By the way, you'll notice right after we read the word, everyone says something at the same time. And this week, something very helpful happened. Um, I was with a, a, a family in our church, and they said, hey, just, just curious, what is it that you say after the reading of God's Word? Because everybody seems to know it at the same time. And it just dawned on me, there's probably a lot of things that we do in here that, that I can just assume everybody knows what we're doing. Um, so I was very appreciative of that question. We actually say whenever the person reads the Word, they say, the Word of the Lord, and everyone responds, thanks be to God. It's a way of us together corporately as God's people saying, God, this is your Word. It is a gift to us. Thank you. It's giving thanks to God for His Word. And, uh, and so I just wanted to say, if you ever have a question about what we do or why we do it, because everything we do, there's a reason, uh, ask. I love those kind of questions, and it reminds me that, that we need to be explaining the things that we do as we go along. Um, so I'm, I'm grateful for that, that question. Um, let me pray for us once more as we come to God's Word this morning. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we, we come this morning because we need to be refreshed by you. We need to be made new. We also need to be called to something. As we see this passage where Isaiah, in his day, comes to the people of God and speaks very directly to them, but calls them to something. An intention that God has for their life, to be the people of God together and what that looks like. Lord, we need to hear this this morning. So would you open every heart, open every ear, Set aside the distractions of the week that we as your people would hear your words calling us to be the people of God in this community that you've placed us in. Lord, we need to hear from you and we need to be compelled by your gospel this morning. So would you come and do that in and through us for the good of Trenton and for the glory of your name. Come and speak to your people. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So each week... Uh, the sermon introduction is a question for the kids. So kids, speak up, speak loudly so we can hear what you say here. So here's your question. Kids, do you ever like to or get to help mom and dad around the house with different things, things that mom and dad do around the house? Do you ever get to join in and help them do that? Do you like to do that? Okay. What are some of the things that you love to do with mom or with dad or around the house? What's that? Work in the garage with your dad. That's great. Okay. Help cooking with your parents. Very good. Very good. Who else? Who else? Alana, what do you like to do at home? Do you help mommy or daddy in any way? What does, she, what does she say? Okay, she helps with cleaning up. I'm sorry, these fans in my ear. I am hard of hearing, but the fans make it worse. So, Wynn. Wynn is my little helper. Anytime I'm making an attempt at fixing something around the house, attempt is the key word there. 
Wins like right in there. He's got his tool belt. The other boys like to help too. Gray, what do you like to help with? Tools. He likes to get his tools out and work with dad. Grant, what is it? Gardening. Yeah, working out in the garden with mom and dad. Yeah. It's fun. And, you know, we know, well, whenever, I remember years ago, I had a very wise uh, older man, a parent. He said to me one time, just gave me some good advice as a parent. He said, you know, one thing that I always tried to do, and I think it really made a real difference in my kids, is anytime I was doing something around the house, I tried to let my kids join in and help. Now, we parents know it's not more efficient, right? And sometimes, whenever I'm not at my best, I can put efficiency over what's best in the moment for my kids. We know very easily that, like, if I do it, it's going to go quicker. Uh, it's going to be far more efficient. It's, it's not going to have to be redone or anything. But there's a certain kind of delight you have as you see your children doing something with you, participating with you. Yeah, it's not the same quality as probably what we're able to do, but, but there is an enormous importance and delight in having your kids participate in what you're doing, which is a tremendous picture of what God does with us and how He allows us to join Him in His mission in the world because He is far more efficient with it than we would ever be. And we make an enormous mess about it. But for some reason, He wants to involve us in what He's doing in the world. We've been in a sermon series, four-part series, on our vision as a church, where together we're, we're saying, what, what is it that God is doing in our world, and it's what, what is He calling us to do in the community that He's called us to be a part of? Last week, we saw, we began to see this this vision is not our vision, it's rather God's vision. God has a vision for this world, something that He is doing in the world. He's got a mission. God is at work in this world. He is at work renewing all things, transforming all things, working all things towards that glorious end where everything is made new, everything is redeemed, everything is restored into its original intention. He's renewing even creation itself. So it's, a, it's an enormous kind of vision. It's a vision that spans the entirety of the Bible. And it's important to realize this is God's vision. It's not our vision. It's not something we make up. Something that we say, oh, we're going to do this. It's His vision. But the remarkable part about this that we see throughout Scripture is that He calls us to join Him in His work in the world. He could do it far more efficiently. In fact, God could snap His fingers and all things would be made new. He could do that. But He has chosen to use us, to employ us to be a part of what He's doing in the world and even in our own little community here in Trenton. So what we're going to focus on today is what is our part? What is that part He's called us to play in His larger vision? And if we said... Last week, and we'll keep repeating, our vision as a church is to seek the renewal of all things in Trenton through Jesus Christ. What is God's vision? To renew all things in Christ, to reconcile all things to Himself. What is our part? To seek that 
through playing our part. This week we're going to say, what is our part in that? What is the part He's called us to play in the renewal of all things? And we see it here in this passage in Isaiah 58. So look with me. Isaiah 58. We're going to be, throughout the series, just kind of hitting different spots in the book of Isaiah. And we notice right off the bat in this passage that they're getting called out. They're getting rebuked. In fact, in the passage, we're going to see three things. One, he rebukes their false religion. Number two, he calls them to play their part. And number three, we're going to see the kind of promises he offers when we play our part. It's the three parts that we're going to see here. But it starts with Isaiah calling out God's people. Did you notice that? Just even how it stands. Not, not the kind of thing that you're really excited to hear. Look at what he says. Shout it aloud. Do not hold back. This is God to Isaiah. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion and to the house of Jacob their sins. So where we begin here is God speaking to His people to wake them up, to rebuke them. And it doesn't sound so good. Declare to my people their rebellion. What could they be doing? Have they been out honky-tonking? Right? Are they running around? Are they drinking? Well, are they, are they trashing the Ten Commandments here? What could they be doing to bring such a harsh rebuke here? Not what we would think. Verse 2, for day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its gods. They ask me for just decisions. They seem eager for God to come near to them. Why have we fasted, they say, and you've not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? So we see here that they have been doing lots of religious things. They've been incredibly devoted. They've been fasting. They've been, uh, on the outside, looking very, very religious. Now, if you were to go, if you were to move to a town and you would be looking for a church and you were to find a church that was, was devoted in this way and, and seeming eager for God, those, that would be the kind of church that you would say, I need to be a part of this church, but not Isaiah. What is going on here? They were extremely devoted what is the problem? And you begin to see the hint, even in those few verses that we read. They seem eager to know my ways. They seem eager for God to come near them. You see, they have an appearance. You see, it's an external on the outside. They look very religious. They're doing all the right things. They're going through all the motions. They're extremely devoted externally. But it's just that. It's just an appearance. It just seems that way. It's not in the heart. They're just religious on the outside. Their motivation is actually to get something from the God, not for God Himself. Why have we fasted, they say, and you've not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? We've done all of this, God, but you're not being fair. You're not coming through. And you see that begins to reveal the reason behind all the religious things that they were doing. It was in order to get something from God rather than for God Himself. Do you see that difference? You see, on the outside, it looked all good, but it was just empty religion. Their hearts 
were not passionate for God. It was not a matter of, of love for God, but rather what they might get from God. He's rebuking their empty religiousness. Now, here's the kind of scary thing about this reality. They had no idea this was the case. You see, religion is far more dangerous as a sin. You know, empty religion, going through the motions, self-righteousness is a far more dangerous sin than the more irreligious version of sins. You know, the, the honky-tonking, the going all out, the doing whatever I want to do. Well, that's kind of obvious that you're sinning whenever that's happening. But the self-righteousness, the religiousness, the pride in the heart, because of how good you think you are before God, and now He owes me, well, it's so hidden. It's so hard to see. That's why Jesus spent most of his time rebuking those who were only religious on the outside, but rather in their hearts were far from God. So how do you know? How do you know if your religion is just an external, it's not real in the heart? Well, here's always the way to discover. How does it lead me to treat other people? That is like the telltale sign. How do I treat other people in my life? Especially how do I treat those who are vulnerable, who can't offer me anything, who, who don't benefit me in any way? How do I treat those people? Do I treat them with love and with kindness? Or am I dismissive? Am I blind to them? It's always, it's always a revelation of what's in the heart, how I treat other people. Jesus taught this quite a bit. He was asked once, what is the greatest commandment, teacher? He was asked for one, and what did he give them? He gave them two. Love God and love your neighbor. All the law and the prophets hang on these. Those are inseparable. You cannot love God without loving your neighbor. In fact, if you think you love God and you do not love your neighbor, 1 John says, you're confused. You're deluded. You do not love God if you don't love your neighbor. And the same is true in the other direction. You cannot love your neighbor unless you first love God. They're inseparable. They flow back and forth to one another. So what Isaiah calls them out on here is the ways in which they are treating one another, especially those who have nothing to offer them. Look at what he says. Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. On the day of your religious observance, yes, you've got this personal devotion going on, but you take advantage of those people who are under you. You exploit your workers. This is one of those things that we're like, what? Is that even in the Bible? What does it matter how I treat those people that are dependent upon me? What is, how does it matter how I treat my workers? I'm talking about devotion to God here. And God says, yes. How you treat those who are dependent upon you is actually how you're treating me. Big wake up there. Verse 4, your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. No, he says, all of your religiousness, what does it lead to? It leads to fighting. Now think about the irony of that. People that are convinced, oh, I just love God, I'm all about God, I'm devoted to Him, I'm doing all my prayers, I'm doing my devotion, I'm doing my fast. And then to another person, you turn to another person and you're mean. And you fight. And you argue. And you judge. You see, Isaiah is beginning to say, do you see how inconsistent that is? Do you see how out of place that is? 
Now, for many of us, this is our very experience of religion itself. You've encountered this before. We've done it, too, to other people. But we all know what it's like to be in a religious context, but yet everybody's so mean to each other. And Isaiah says, that's not real religion. It's just a pretending. If it doesn't begin to change the way that you treat other people. So he rebukes this empty religion, this devotion that doesn't produce a love for one another, particularly the vulnerable. But then, in verse 6, he begins to call us to a certain kind of living, a certain kind of love of our neighbor. Um, This is a picture of our part. What is our part in this vision, in this mission? Verse 6. Is it not, is this not the kind of fasting I've chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke. To set the oppressed free and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry? To provide the poor wanderer with shelter. When you see the naked to clothe him and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. Jumping down to the second part of verse 9. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and the malicious talk, and if you spend yourself in the behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed. Wow. What's going on with Isaiah here? He sounds to me like a bleeding heart liberal. What's going on here? Has he gone all Democrat on us? You see the kind of obedience in life he's emphasizing here? It's almost described entirely in terms of justice. It's almost described entirely of terms of how we treat other people, particularly those who are poor, who are broken, who are needy. You know, we've kind of been duped in our culture to viewing all things through two particular political lenses. You're either a liberal or you're a conservative. And we know how the conservatives are. The conservatives tend to emphasize personal responsibility. You know, what's most important is how you live your life. You are a responsible individual. You you are liable for the choices you make in life. And to that, the Bible says, yes, absolutely. But then from a more left-leaning perspective, you would say, uh, liberals would say, you are responsible for your neighbor. People are the victims of systems of injustice. And we ought to care about that. That ought to be our concern. We ought to we, we have a responsibility to other people, a corporate responsibility, and to that the Bible says, yes. But here's the problem. In our culture, we have identified the church with a particular political persuasion. We've almost entirely identified in Christianity with conservative republicanism. And now listen, I'm not telling you how to vote. I'm not telling you not to vote. I'm telling you to vote. But all I'm telling you is is that we cannot lower our values in order to identify it with a particular political persuasion. Because here's the reality. No worldly system of morality can match our values. The values of the kingdom of God are so far beyond anything that is in this world. And so if we attach ourselves to a particular persuasion, we're lowering our values. It's not just two lenses. There's a third lens, and it's the kingdom of God. Almost entirely the way that Isaiah here speaks of our part 
is through the lens of justice, through how we are to engage uh, those who are in need, those who need mercy in our world. Now, we tend to think of that concept of justice primarily in terms of punishment. You know, if someone has done something wrong, then justice is bringing penalty, bringing punishment to that wrongdoing. And that is definitely an aspect of justice. But as the Bible talks about justice, it's talking about a a far more broad kind of concept of justice. It's essentially giving people their due, making things right. You see, from the perspective of the Bible, from the perspective of God, one of the most central problems of the world today is that people exploit one another, is that the powerful exploit the weak. They take advantage of them, right? That is, that is what the Bible calls oppression. You see, because every single image of God, every single person is precious to God, that is a violation of His priorities. And so God is extremely concerned about oppression and injustice. So as He speaks here to us, And this is a message that the American church desperately needs to hear because we're kind of like where the people of God were in Isaiah. We look very religious and devoted on the outside. We've got the personal devotion down. But our engagement with the poor and with the broken of our world is so lacking. He's calling us out to say, if you think you're devoted, but it's not ushering forth in love for your neighbor in actually addressing the systems of injustice. That's what he actually talks about here. Uh, To loose the chains of injustice, to set the oppressed free, to break every yoke. The yoke was a a, a thing that was used in agriculture. Uh, It was a bar that was put over the back, back of an oxen so that they would pull a load. And so it becomes a symbol of being under... Uh, oppression, of being tied down, of of having a weight on your back. It it was an image of of slavery or oppression. And so he's actually calling us, yes, to actually care for people in need, to show mercy, to clothe those who are are naked, for, for those who are in dire circumstances, to come with our resources to help them, but also to oppose the systems of injustice that are in our world. This is our part. The poor are our business as the church. This is to be our wheelhouse. This is the area of life where we say, this is what we're about. We are about justice. We are about the poor and the vulnerable. So what does this mean for us specifically here in our community? Because we... God has placed us in the midst of a community where there's a tremendous amount of poverty. There's a tremendous amount of need. There's a tremendous amount of injustice. What does it mean for us specifically to work for justice? Well, right off the bat, I would say this. Just beginning to open your eyes right where God has put you, you will begin to see need. You will begin to see those who are stuck in a a cycle of poverty. You will begin to see people who need help, people who need dignity, people who need someone to come and walk alongside them and help them up out of the pit. And so the first thing to notice is that we don't even have to be going somewhere else to find it. It's right around us, in our places of work, in our neighborhoods, the, the, the places where we recreate and play. If you begin to open your eyes through this lens we will begin to see injustice. 
places to enter in and get, get down and dirty in people's lives. Begin to help them. But let me also say this. I think a tremendous place to enter in and work for justice is in the school system in this community. The school system is like the hub of Day County. It's like the, the unifying piece. It brings people together. If, you wanna, if you're not so sure about that, Friday night in the fall, where's the whole community at? That stadium right over there. The school brings people together. And we have a number of educators here. Uh, and they will tell you, they see injustice in a way that most of us have never even seen. You see, one of the unique things about our community, it's not like a city, like an urban setting. You know, in a big city, you can drive through the city, and if you drive through the right part of town, you see poverty everywhere. You see homeless people, you see people begging, you see all kinds of bad stuff there. It's obvious to see, but whenever you come to a rural place, whenever you're in a small rural town like this, it's hidden. You don't see it. People are not out on the street quarters begging. People are up in the hollers, right? They're down the dirt road. They're isolated. They're oftentimes far too proud to come and say, I need help. So they're suffering and misery. But in our school system, through the children, you see it. You see hungry children. You see abused children. You see people who are in the cycle of poverty, which is not just a lack of money. It's a whole way of thinking, a whole way of thinking about yourself that just carries shame. It's like a shackle of shame that holds you down and you feel like, I can never get up out of this. I can never improve. It doesn't matter what I do. That is part of the shame of poverty. And injustice is all about saying, how can I come in and address that? And there are so many opportunities in our school to mentor. If you have children there, to find ways to get involved. If you go to the school and you say, hey, I'd like to help, you're not going to have a problem finding things to do. They will tell you. Our school system is very open to outside help. But even beyond that, every week, I receive emails and calls about people in need. Sometimes it's people that, that are just, they're not able to take care of the basic things. They just need help around their house, help fixing stuff. Some people have medical bills that are just overwhelming. Um, some people need things fixed. They, they need clothes. We, we have all kinds of things like this. And so for us to work for mercy and justice, it's for us to begin to say, what is my part? Where do I need to step up and serve and be a part of this? But what you've got to see is that this is our part. This isn't an add-on. This isn't a, like, get devoted to Jesus, and if you ever get around to it, maybe help somebody. He says it's right at the very core of who we are to be. It is our part in God's vision in the world. Now, let me just say this at this point. It's ultimately not a matter of saying, all right, what do I got to do? I'm going to get busy. I'm going to get after it. I hope you have some, something of a reaction like that, that you're called to that. But I want to say it's not ultimately about us saying, what have I got to go do? I'm going to change. I'm going to white-knuckle it. Because you see, ultimately, justice is a matter of the heart. You see, the way that we treat other people, as we mentioned earlier, is always an overflow of the experience of grace in the heart. And so we're never going to be people 
who are overflowing with justice and mercy unless first we are experiencing the grace of God deep in our hearts. That is the only thing that produces real justice in our life. It is an experience of God's unmerited grace through Christ on an ongoing basis in our life. Only the gospel motivates and creates a life of justice. You see, Isaiah in the Bible is not saying, hey, here's the things that you need to do, and so if you go do those things, then you will be accepted by God. You will have His favor. You will come and, 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 uh, and be accepted by Him. That is actually what religion says. That's what they were doing. But you see, the gospel reverses the whole formula. It says you get in, you get accepted based upon the work of another, entirely a gift of grace. And so then justice becomes an overflow of a heart that has encountered grace. You see, as we see the gospel, as we rest in the gospel, the gospel shows us over and over, I am broken. I am poor before God. I'm spiritually bankrupt before God. I'm naked. I'm unable to lift myself up out of my spiritual brokenness and poverty. So whenever we look at another poor person, the gospel allows you to see that person like looking into a mirror. If I'm believing and resting in the gospel, as I look at another person, I'm saying, I'm the same kind of broken as you. Maybe not exactly in the same kind of way, but if I begin to consider my spiritual condition before God, I begin to see I'm in desperate, daily need of grace. But yet the gospel shows us that God in Christ has come all the way down into the midst of our brokenness. God has come down into the pit of spiritual brokenness that we all have found ourselves, and He rescues us. He clothes us with His perfect righteousness. He cleanses us. He gives us hope. He gives us a future. You see, to the degree that that is real in your life on an ongoing basis is the degree to which we will be people of justice and mercy. You see, it's really an evidence of grace experienced in the heart. Free grace. So let me finish with this. We've seen our part of what we're called to. But we see finally this, the promise of renewal over and over and over in this passage. Did you see the kind of things that God says He will do as they play their part? Verse 8. Then, and that is after they have gone about this justice, then your light will break forth like the dawn. Your healing will quickly appear. What an image. This light breaking forth into darkness. You know, this world is a place of darkness. You, you, don't need a, you don't need a professional degree to know that. This world is a place of darkness. Even my own heart is a place of darkness. But rather, God promises your light will break forth. The same way that the dawn begins to break in on the night and darkness is chased away, this is what God says, I will do through you in the place where you are. Your righteousness will go before you. The glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and He will say, Here am I. This intimacy with the Lord. Um, the Lord, uh, verse 10, second part of verse 10, Then your light will rise in darkness. Again, this, this image of light, God's light coming into the world through us, His people. 
Your night will become like the noonday. Verse 11, the Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. This image of us, God making us fruitful like a garden. You know, the, the water, the well water there is, is God Himself by His Spirit pouring in upon us so that we begin to grow as God's people. We begin to flourish. We actually become like a spring where God's abundance and life flows into us and out into our community. A tremendous picture. Verse 12, Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up age-old foundations. You will be called repair of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. Those images there, you will be repairers, rebuilders, restorers. When do you restore something? You restore something whenever it's broken down. It had an original glory, but it's been torn apart. It's been brought down. And yet to rebuild it is to bring it back to its intended glory, which is exactly what we're doing as we go about justice in the world. God says you will be about rebuilding the kingdom of God. You see, God made this world for a beauty that surpasses even our greatest dreams. But yet it's been broken down. It's been torn apart. But yet we are God's agents who are to go about rebuilding restoring and renewing all things. And God will do it in us as we go about justice and mercy. Let me close with an illustration here. So many of you know that Ashley and I, we, we just, just bought a house. But before we bought the house, for about a year and a half, we were on the house hunt. We were looking at a number of houses each week. I think we probably looked at every house in Trenton, almost, about half of them. And um, here's how it would work. Ashley would... You know, talk to the realtor. She was looking online, and she would find a house, and so she would set it up, and we'd go see this house. I didn't know what we are about to see, but she would see pictures of it and everything. And a lot of times, we'd walk into this house, and it was like a house that was like really broken down, you know, things are falling off the walls, you know, uh, hadn't been touched in a long time, you know, it's, it's, uh, the grass is really high, you'd stumble over a car or a lawnmower, you know. The, the houses were pretty broken down. And I would walk into these places, and you know what I would see whenever I walk into these houses? I would see work. Lots of work. That's all I could see. And I'd be like, oh my goodness. And Ashley would be in there, and she'd be like, oh, oh. You know, she, she was having a very different reaction. And so we would walk away, because we wouldn't, usually wouldn't discuss in front of the realtor. And we'd walk away, and she'd say, so what would you think? And I'd say, Really? I thought it looked like a ton of work. She would say, no, it's got so much promise. You know, we could do this and this, and, and, and we could uh, rebuild it. And you know what that probably looked like one day? I mean, that house was really built with strong bones. I mean, we could bring it back to its original glory, and, and do you see the potential there? Now, what accounted for the two totally different reactions in us? This, vision. Ashley walked into the houses, and she had vision. I didn't. I walked in, and I just saw exactly what was there, and I was like, that's a lot of work. I'm out of here. But as she went about looking at the houses, she was looking with vision. She wasn't just looking at what was. She was looking at what could be. And she was actually compelled 
by taking something broken down and bringing it into its intended glory. You see, that is exactly what God has called us to in our world, in our community. You know, what's natural in us is whenever we see messiness, whenever we see brokenness, whenever we see poverty, I'm walking the other way because all I see there is cost and time, and that's just going to be messy. I'd rather write a check. You see, God is calling us to live with vision, His vision for the kingdom of God. And so as we see people and we see brokenness, we would not just see that, but what we could see in people what God had created them to be. And so that we would have hope for people, even people who have lost hope for themselves. And you see the freedom in all of this is it's not up to us. It's something that God Himself not only does, but has bound Himself to do. We are called to go about our lives in this community with vision, the vision for God's renewal of all things. So let me stop there and give us a few moments to respond to each other. If you're new to us, we do this each week. At the end of the sermon, we stop and we have an opportunity just to hear from each other, just to share, hey, how does that strike me? How does that excite me? How does that challenge me? What kind of questions do we have? It's just an opportunity to, to interact over the passage. Can I get a couple guys to cut the fans off so we can hear each other? Thanks, guys. So how does that strike you? How does that affect you? Just to see the vision, to see the call of Isaiah.